Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 8th, 2024, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're covering everyone's favorite zephyr. It's the swordfish. And we are very pleased to have sword fishing boat captain and best-selling author Linda Greenlaw join us today from Maine. So super excited to chat with you, Linda. Thanks. I'm excited to be a part of this. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I think a lot of people are probably familiar and have in their minds what a swordfish looks like or maybe a fillet, but fish are so beautiful. And I'm hoping you can help folks listening imagine what it's like to be up close to a swordfish, like its size, texture, color, and anything else that really stands out in your mind. The most obvious thing about the swordfish is the bill, the sword itself which makes it just so amazing. It's like catching unicorns. What else looks like that? Swordfish, like most fish, uh, are very colorful when they're alive. They're big. They're beautiful. Um, They've got this big bill. They're a pretty amazing fish. How big is that bill? How long is it? Depends on the size of the fish, but very much like people, there are short, fat fish, and there are long, skinny, called racers. The average fish, that changes year to year. But the last year that I was sword fishing, our average fish landed was a little over 200 pounds, which is big. Okay. Yeah. And is that sword part like sharp or what does that actually feel like? It it is sharp on the edges. It's not like a marlin. It's not a spike. It's flat on the top and bottom and sharp on those lateral edges. It's very much like bone. Certain types of marlin, until you get very close, get the fish on the boat could very easily be be mistaken for a swordfish. But the big difference is the bill. Where marlin is more like a spike, the swordfish has those two very sharp edges. While we're on the topic of these swordfish relatives, we should also throw out that, so they're in this order Istioforiformes. You think about all these billfishes, your marlin, sailfishes, spearfishes, swordfish, which swordfish are, they're the only fish in their whole family Mm -hmm. that's sister to all those other ones. But then you also have the barracudas, which of course don't have that bill, but are also related. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, but that's really interesting. I'm glad you said the order name. I was looking at those orders and families and (laughs) yeah, I didn't want to have to say. What are they doing with that in the water? Are they slashing other fish? What's that for? They swim through a school of bait fish slashing the sword back and forth, and then they circle back and eat the ones that they have injured. They also got this giant eye on Mm -hmm. them. What does that tell us about where and how these fish are living in addition to this bill? They live in very deep water for the most part, and they do most of their feeding on the bottom. That giant eye, I think, speaks to the fact that they're in very deep water. Yeah. One thing that's cool about them is that They're one of the few species of fish out there that have some sort of heat retention going on in the body. And specifically isolated, they got these cells at the base of the eye that they're called heater cells because scientists aren't super descriptive (laughs) or aren't super creative, (laughs) are very descriptive. And they keep the brain and the eyes warm. We talked about how important those eyes are for seeing in low light visibility down deep. I've read that those cells, those heater cells, have the highest density or of mitochondria of any cell in the animal kingdom. So just ah. producing tons of energy, tons of heat. It's Give cool adaptation. A, an edge. They look like they'd be fast. They are fast and they're strong. Long lining, 
even though it's very industrial, we're fishing 40 miles of line a night. It, it sounds wow. like a lot, but it's still fishing with hooks. And it comes down to one man and one fish at some mm -hmm. point, And it's just pulling a fish in by hand, just hand over hand. And yeah, they're strong. These are super migratory, predatory fish. How do you go about finding one of these fish in the wide open ocean? Long lining. Obviously, you're fishing with hooks, with bait, and you want to be where the fish are, of course. Now, fishing east of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, we're fishing in thousands of fathoms of water, but we're fishing relatively close to the surface. So the best fishing, let's say, from the first quarter of the moon through the full moon to the last quarter of the moon, the fish do at night come closer to the surface. We wouldn't be able to catch them on the bottom, which is where they primarily spend most of their time. In mm. that water, you'd never get a hook to the bottom. The fish are most abundant in places where two bodies of water come together. So that would be east of Newfoundland. It's where the hot water of the Gulf Stream pushes up into the Labrador Current, which is a very cold water coming down from Labrador. Where these two bodies of water come together, of course, there's a temperature gradient, but more importantly, there's a current change. The hot water generally moves faster than the cold water, and things collect on these gradients. So a temperature break is easier to find and see because you just have a temperature gauge on the boat. You're steaming and you're in cold water, bang, suddenly you're hot water. You turn north, it gets cold. You turn south, it gets hot. You found your break and you can follow mm -hmm. that. You're really fishing the current change, but you have to have something called the Doppler on the boat. The last couple of boats I ran were very sophisticated. We had Dopplers and so you could measure the current at three different depths. You need to set the parameters yourself and it gives you cool. the current relative to the surface. It's a lot of math involved. You have to do these vector analyses to figure out what the water where your hooks are is doing. You get used to looking at different patterns that this Basically, the machine is giving you, this is all very boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> Want to fish the current change where your hooks are, not on the surface. We're a nerdy show. We love it. Yeah. And I guess in terms of those swordfish are keying into that, I'm guessing their prey are too. What are they eating? Depending on where you're fishing. Swordfish spend most of their life on bottom. So they're eating bottom fish, capelin, haddock, codfish. When they come closer to the surface, which is at night, whatever type of bait fish is in the area where you're fishing flying fish, mackerel, anything that schools. And you can see these big clouds of bait fish on your sound machine, birds working on the surface. You pretty much know if you're in a good spot when you see whales, birds, and sometimes you can physically see this temperature gradient that you're fishing because quite often this sargasso seaweed collects on this break. You'll see these huge rafts and weed lines. The question is, which side do you want to be on with your gear? So you don't put all your eggs in one basket and kind of cover the whole break. And then the next day when you haul your gear back, then you, you get a better sense of where you want to be. Kind of fine tune it as you go. You go out and you're on these sword fishing trips. I know that they can last for some time. Can you take us through everything that goes into the preparation, how long you're out, how how you keep the fish preserved on the way back, and just what what's it like uh, as a crew member or as a captain on a sword fishing trip? Sure. We try to keep our trip at 28 to 30 days because we want to stay with the wow. lunar cycle. Okay. The fishing is the best. 
either side of the full moon. So you want to be putting your first hooks in the water around the first quarter of the moon, fish through the full moon, and maybe to the last quarter. You want to do your steaming back and forth and your uh, unloading and reloading at the dock during the new moon because the fishing's not as good. So gotcha. if you prolong a trip, you get off moon, that could cost you, worst case scenario, it could cost you one trip per season. And wow. one trip is a big deal because the trip's a month long. Every trip was a major part of your living. There's a lot of prep. A lot of money is invested before you leave the dock. You would burn, for instance, 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel. We would take 10,000 pounds of frozen bait, either squid or mackerel or a combination of those. We use these light sticks or chemical lights on every single hook. If you're sending 1,000 a night, that's a 1,000 light sticks a night you're burning through. Very expensive. Wow. Groceries for five or six people for 30 days. That's a huge expense. So let's say just being somewhat conservative, you've got 50 grand invested before you set your first hook. Wow. And are you doing a trip every month? Are you doing 12 trips a year or just less? Yeah, depending. Like the Grand Bank season is pretty much May through October. And then in the winter months, some people go to other fisheries and some years I have gone to the Caribbean, chase the fish uh, down there and fish out of Puerto Rico for the winter months. The fishing isn't as good down there, but it's easy on the boat weather-wise, and it's, it's a, a nice break for the crew. Imagine putting you know, a long season on the Grand Banks, very much like fishing the Bering Sea. The weather's not mm-hmm. great, and you're out in the middle of nowhere bobbing around like a cork. And then you have this nice opportunity to go down and fish out of Puerto Rico, fishing in shorts and flip-flops for three months. (laughs) That's awesome. That sounds nice. And it's it's a really nice break. Like I said, it's not a big money-making thing. Hopefully, you make your money on the Grand Bank so you can afford to kind of coast for the winter. Who's investing this 50000 Is it the captain? Is it an external investor, someone who, who, who owns the boat? And then how is the crew paid? Do they get paid... Regardless of catcher, they just get a portion of uh, what they bring in. Most boats are not owner-operated. Most boats, the owner is ashore. The owner puts up the money to get the boat off the dock. It all boils down to about the same thing. You come in with your fish, you unload, you hope for a big price. All the expenses come off the top of the trip. So let's say you come in with, just make it easy numbers, 50,000 pounds of swordfish and you average four bucks a pound, what's that, $200,000 for the trip, for the month, that take 50 grand off the top for all the expenses, that leaves 150,000. Generally, the boat takes half. So $75,000 would go to the boat owner, and the other $75,000 would be uh, split among the captain and crew. It it varies a little bit, but it all boils down to the expenses need to be paid before anybody makes any money, including the boat owner. Our uh, trips uh, we call brokers, and that's a trip where nobody makes any money. Uh, It does happen. That generally happens really early in the season. The fish just aren't quite there yet because they are migratory. So May trip is really risky, but do the best you can, and hopefully you don't go too far behind in May. And then June, July, August, September, and October, you hope that you can keep everything together and get your big trips in. Say you've hooked a swordfish. How do you bring it on the deck safely? So when the fish breaks the surface of the water, gets very close to the surface of the water because there's one guy wiring the fish to pull it in hand over hand with this monofilament leader, which is the thing the hook is attached to. 
we have gaffs with sharp hooks. A couple of guys with the big fish, two guys would gaff the fish in the head, uh, ideally in the eye, but wherever, in the head, and pull the fish head first through a door in the side of the boat. First thing to do is to, somebody has to have their hand on the bill because swordfish, that is their weapon. And yeah. think of it as slashing with a sword, not stabbing. They don't stab, you know, that, but they like slash side to side shake. back and forth, side to side, and you don't want to be hit with it. Uh, yeah. So the first thing, um, somebody has their hand on that and something called a meat saw, just a hand saw, very much like a hacksaw, but bigger. Um, they cut that bill off, takes the weapon away from them. And then the um, one person on the boat is designated butcher. They dress the fish, they head it, gut it, do something called bloodlining and something called sliming. It's a little bit involved in cleaning a fish that's going to be put down on ice for two weeks. A while, yeah, yeah. So we make our own ice. For the most part, we use salt water ice. So we make ocean water ice. It's four degrees colder than fresh water ice, and it keeps the fish much better. When I first started fishing, these salt water ice machines did not exist. You could tell when you unloaded, you could tell the top of the trip from the bottom of the trip. You could see it. You could smell it. But with salt water ice, um, it doesn't freeze them, but it's very close to freezing them. They're fresh, but they just great quality if they're handled correctly. Most places where you sell fish, you're not going to get big money for a fish that's lesser quality than it should be. So there's everyone has a lot of incentive to to bring in top quality fish and, and get the most money they can for it. With a well-experienced crew, what's the time from fish gaffed to fish packed away in the ice? Oh, I'd say three to five minutes. Three wow. to five minutes. Most of that is it's this process of cleaning a big fish. Being a long a long-term commercial fisherman, do you have any superstitions? Yeah, I grew up with tons of them. I don't consider myself a super superstitious person, <laughs> but when I'm on a boat, I do follow the protocol, which is you don't whistle and blues yeah. bad luck and women are bad luck on boats for Jonas. And you don't say the word P-I-G, you'll spell it. And you, and you don't say <laughs> the number after 12, you say one, three. I still cringe when someone says the word P-I-G. It's just, even if I can't even see the water, if someone says that word, I'm just like, oh man, can you just spell it or say curly-tailed animal? <laughs> don't put a hatch cover upside down. No bananas oh, on a boat. Bananas are... Okay, really I know bad. that one. But, I didn't uh, know a lot of those. That's funny. Linda, you got into sword fishing. I gotta imagine that's pretty tough. As a 19-year-old, what was that like? I was raised on an island off the coast of Maine, so boats and fishing are pretty much the way of life. I was no stranger to boats. Uh, I grew up hauling lobster trout at a very early age. Sword fishing was obviously very different and when I was 19 years old, it wasn't as common as it is today for women in fisheries, for sure. The first sword fishing job, I signed on as a cook. And back then, let's see, I was 19. So that would have been 1979. So a few years ago, it was okay for a woman to be a cook on a boat. And I lied to get the job. I couldn't even cook. But I just, I really needed money for school and I... Just felt like it was a pretty natural step for me to throw this garbage bag full of dungarees and t-shirts from the back of the beat up pickup truck onto the deck of the Walter Alvin Lehman Sr., the first sword fishing boat I was employed on. Luckily for everyone involved, 
one of the crew members, one of the regular deckhands hurt his back early mm -hmm. on in the trip. And he took over in the galley and I took over on deck and it was a much happier situation for everyone. That's awesome. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about fishing? Like the fish itself, the weather, being on the water, like what motivates you? What I really love about fishing just in general is the sheer optimism of it. Challenges for fishermen are bad weather, mechanical breakdown, slow fishing, morale issues amongst the crew. When the chips are down, it's the true fisherman who just never gives up. It's the, the next hook, the next trap, the next day, the next season. When the moon gets full, warmer, cooler, deeper, shoaler, there's always reason to hope. And that's really precisely what I love about the life I've chosen. That's great. As captain, are you like the motivator for folks or do you play a particular role with that psychology of folks on board for a long time? 100%. I am the tone setter and I'm mm -hmm. a hard worker. My only asset is my work ethic. Seriously, nobody outworks Linda Greenlaw. I'm not a young mm -hmm. girl anymore and I can still say that. I know how to work. It's the one thing I know okay. how to do. And that goes a long way to motivating a crew where who wants to keep up. I treat everyone the way I want to be treated, which is with respect. I don't say my crew works for me. My crew works with me. We work together. And especially in the sword fishing industry, it really is a team effort. Uh, you can't have two really good guys and three duds. It really does mm -hmm. take five good guys or gals, mm -hmm. just five good people. Good lesson in leadership. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's not a job on the boat I haven't done. I started at the bottom and I've done every job on the boat. That goes a long way towards it too. I wasn't born into it and given a boat. Yeah. Can you remember the first swordfish you ever caught or the most meaningful fish that you've had on your line? The most meaningful trip was the first trip where I was running the boat myself because I had been on deck all through college. That was summers only. And then after I graduated, I started fishing year round and I stayed on the same boat long enough to have been the butcher, been the engineer, started as a cook, blah, 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 became the first mate probably by attrition because there's a lot of loyalty in the fishing business. The grass is always greener, yeah. but I stayed. And because the owner of that boat bought a second boat, I had my first opportunity to captain. And I was definitely ready, or I thought I was. And I remember very distinctly leaving Portland, Maine the first time in the captain's chair and really mm. second guessing everything. Oh man, is that buoy? Am I on the right side? I've been in and out of there a million times. <laughs> but the first time you're actually in charge, yeah, very nerve wracking. Yeah, which is a okay. good thing. Maria mentioned you wear a pen on your shirt when you're out on the water. Is there a story that you'd like to share about that? Yeah, I wear the mustard seed pin. It's actually biblical and I'm not super religious. It's about if you have the faith of a mustard seed, which is really tiny, you can overcome anything. I don't think that has to be taken in any biblical sense. Keeping the faith in yourself, in your crew, in a lot of things just doesn't take that much, right? You have to really believe that you can overcome. Have you been out on the water with Maria? Yes, I have. Yep. When okay. I first got to Alaska, she was one of the first people I met. And I was delighted to know that I was going to be on a boat with her. I had never fished with another woman in all wow. my fishing career. 
and never fished with a woman. Marie and I, we both enjoyed the fact that there was another woman on the boat because it's different. It's better. Any guy who's honest, who's worked on the deck of a boat with me as captain, will say things are different with a woman captain and it's better. Awesome. That might be a good uh, trade. Hey, Maria, you want to come do your minute? <laughs> Hong Hong, everyone. It's me, Maria, coming at you with a minute with Maria. As I hear Linda Greenlaw talking, I can't help but think about how wonderful it was to work with her. Virtual fist pump to you, Linda Greenlaw. When I was new into the commercial fishing world, there wasn't a lot of other women that were doing the fishery with us. Working with Linda was an absolute dream come true. I really took note and followed her lead. When Linda was talking about heritage, I could really relate to that because my ancestors came over to the Lucians and worked in commercial fishing. My great-grandfather did it and it's been passed down. My mom had told me commercial fishing is either going to make or break you. And that really sticks with me, especially when times get tough. When we're out on the water for long periods of time, it really becomes surreal how far off land we are. You have to bring yourself to just realize what's at stake. And you just got to focus on the task at hand and catching fish. It's just a way of life for us. And so if the heritage goes, there's not really much to look forward to. Fisheries are really important because of that. Not only for our livelihoods, but just our culture as well. Linda, I love you. I love hearing you talk about fish. Hearing you talk about swordfish has been so cool. It's a fish that I've never seen in real life and I've only dreamed about. Kagasakung, everyone. Thanks for listening in. We'll talk to you next week. I recall reading some of Zane Gray's early writings on fishing for swordfish out in California. He was describing fish cruising on the top with their that kind of sickle-like falcate dorsal fin riding out of the water and fighting fish for 11, 12 hours. So obviously they're very powerful. There was and still is a harpoon fishery for swordfish. When I first started sword fishing, uh, I was 19 years old and it was a, a job that paid my way through college. And the boat that I was on was harpooning and long lining. That was on George's Banks right off the New England coast here, uh, a couple hundred miles offshore. Swordfish are caught in every ocean. But there are only a few places on the planet that swordfish will fin or come to the surface so they can be harpooned. George's Banks is one of those places. I have spent the majority of my fishing career east of Newfoundland on the Grand Banks. They do not surface there. Never hmm. seen it again. We started off one of the first episodes of this past season was Opa, Opa. which is Opa. Opa. And it makes me, I wonder... <laughs> If that's one that they thought it was like one or two species for a long time, pan-oceanic, and they split it up. So I'm, I'm curious if anyone's looked into the genetics of swordfish to see. We say it's the one species, Xiphius gladius, but it whether or not it's actually the same thing or if you have different breeding populations. It's hard to believe that it's all the same. I've fished the Indian Ocean for swordfish from Kenya and Somalia to the Maldives. Oh, wow. What's the swordfish... The color is very different, and it's probably just a product of what they're feeding on. But they're, they have a lot more like a coppery brown mixed in with the various colors that are in a swordfish. 
when I first saw them, I was like, ah, just attribute that to whatever they're eating over here has got to be a little different, but I don't know as anyone's ever done the genetic testing to see what's what there. What was your time like in the Indian Ocean scouting for these fish? It was probably the best and worst fishing experience of my life. I was hired by the Kenyan government to do some baseline fishing. They had money from the World Bank to create a sustainable and more modern fishing fleet for Florida tuna. So as the resident expert, I was hired to go fishing with the locals on their boat and do a lot of written reports as to the resource itself and advise how to change what they had to a sustainable fishery and more modern. They were a long way to go to more modern. A great fishery over there, great resource, primarily because where we were fishing, all of the big foreign fleets did not fish there for fear of piracy. Yep. So it was really just these real small local boats fishing with very primitive equipment, almost nothing for electronics. The gear was crude at best. And Were they using like buoy gear or what were they using? Yeah, they, they were using traditional long line gear with snaps and monofilament and hooks, but just real big gummy, that stuff just wouldn't, it wouldn't fish over here okay. at all. I would say it was the best and the worst because the fishermen were very skeptical that any of the money would ever really trickle down to help them in any way because of corruption. And I was over there long enough to learn that they were correct. And I was being paid so well for my participation. And I was working with the poorest people I'd ever imagined. I thought I knew poverty and I did not until I went over there. And they were the most generous group of people I've ever saw. And it was the best and the worst all rolled into one. I learned a lot, but wow. Okay. It's been a couple decades, I think, now that the North Atlantic swordfish stock has been considered rebuilt by ICAT. That's the International Convention for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, and they also manage for sharks and billfishes. Since then, the U.S. has routinely harvested less than its allocated ICAT quota, like less than half. And I'm curious why you think that is that the U.S. isn't fully utilizing its quota. Yeah, that's a very simple answer, and that is there aren't that many boats in the fishery. So whether boats many years ago were regulated out or when the fishing wasn't great, it's a very expensive fishery. You got to have 50 grand for a trip. And there are other things you could do that are a lot less risky. Shorter trips, you don't have as much invested, stay closer to home. There are ways to make money without going to sea for a month and being a thousand miles from home. So there are a lot fewer boats in the fishery now than were 30 or 40 years ago. Okay. So it seems like it's mainly just an economic thing. Yeah, it's an economic thing. A lot of the regulations, it doesn't matter what fishery you're in, it's decreasing the effort on a fishery, right? Whether it's limiting the number of hooks you fish, the size of mesh you use when you're towing a net, the number of days you can fish. I can remember very distinctly when the circle hook became mandated and all the fishermen were really upset about that because it was supposed to decrease our catch by a certain percentage. The circle hook was designed and mandated basically 
to eliminate interaction with marine mammals. One, east of the Grand Banks, it was turtles. With the circle hook, everything is hooked in the latch of the jaw. The, the fish or the turtle, whatever, doesn't ingest the hook. So everything's coming up alive. You may catch fewer swordfish because of the circle hook, but every fish you catch is alive. Two great things about that is if you catch a juvenile swordfish, you pop the hook out of the corner of the jaw and you throw the thing back. Great thing for the industry. The second thing is the quality of the fish is that much better because it is coming aboard alive. And mm-hmm. it has been laying on a hook in the water for X amount of hours waiting to be hauled aboard. So it's just better quality fish. Okay. I don't think anybody ever really noticed uh, any decline in their catch either with it, which which we were fully expecting and why everyone fought it. I'm curious what your thoughts are on changes in the fisheries in the U.S. You used to fish off of Gloucester and off of the Northeast for a long time, but I went and visited Gloucester recently and it seemed like it wasn't much of a fishing community anymore. I think Gloucester is probably the best example of what's happening. And that is um, losing working waterfront. Fishermen are falling by the wayside. Not as many boats, not as many people. It's not an industry that I would encourage uh, young people to get into right now, unless they're absolutely in love with it. And then, yeah, by all means, go for it. But it's not a great opportunity. New Bedford, Massachusetts, I fished out of there for years and I was there very recently that port is still thriving, and it's because of scallop. It's a huge fishery, a lot of boats. It's a lot of money. I don't want to say it's the last one that I know about over here in the Northeast, but most of them are like a, a lot of places hardly have a fishing fleet anymore. Portland, Maine is a good example. Not a lot of boats fishing out of Portland anymore. We talk a lot on this show about the importance of conserving fishes for their ecological value and their intrinsic value, but we don't talk hardly at all about conserving fisheries. I'm curious, is there a value in trying to conserve fishing communities beyond the economic value? Any cultural value, or if the economic value isn't there, should we let them die? Oh, God, yeah. The only reason, and the biggest reason is not economic. The biggest reason is it's heritage. It is a culture. It is heritage. Commercial fishing is the oldest profession in the world. Maybe prostitution, that's arguable, but I say it's fishing. And it's a way of life that's been enjoyed or not enjoyed by some since time began. There's a lot of value in in keeping that going. I want to preserve fish, yes, because only because I want to know that people coming after me will have the same opportunities that I have. It's when you're like facing that water. If you've got a community, the water is important. It's a waterfront. You're getting fish out of it. Like it, it keeps that connection, which is important for conservation too. I think people turning away from the water, turning away from the river, you lose that connection to that resource and those fish and that way of life. Yes. The follow-up would be then if c- considering how expensive waterfront real estate is and how much demand there is for other uses, how do we conserve this fishing culture in the U.S. and where it's starting to dwindle? How do we do it? Yeah. Do you have any idea? I know it's a tough question. If it was easy, we'd have solved already. But with your insights as someone who's worked in these communities across the country, across the world, I'm wondering if you have any insights about how we go about preserving this. I wish I had an answer for that. 
Darn. But Thought I, we could have solved it right time. here, right now. Sorry. No magic <laughs> bullet. Yeah, I, I wish I had an answer for that. I just don't. All my fishing career, I've always been very optimistic. As I said, it's a sheer optimism. And very recently, finding it a little tougher to, to remain optimistic about the future of the fisheries close to home. I'm talking primarily about the, the main lobster fishing industry, which is near and dear to me. I cut my teeth hauling lobster traps, right? And I'm hauling lobster traps today. And it's getting increasingly difficult to, to see a future that's very bright. Why should people care about swordfish? And is there anything the average person can do to help conserve or connect with these fish? I think people should care about swordfish and they should enjoy swordfish. Nothing better than a swordfish steak cooked on a grill. And it's every other type of fish. Make sure it's good quality. And it's got to be super fresh, prepared correctly, and melt in your mouth. It's a very healthy thing to eat. And I think the biggest thing that people could do to help fishing in general is just to know the facts and to maybe dig a little deeper than what mainstream media has to say about the fisheries in general. I was going to check in with Linda and see if she has anything that she's just itching to say on this podcast to folks. I think we covered it. We didn't mention that she's featured in the most famous sword fishing movie of all time, The the Perfect Storm. I'm curious, that movie... Now, it's it's good. John C. Riley is one of the most versatile actors out there, uh, but it didn't have enough fishing for me, and it felt like some, some of the interactions between people on the boat felt kind of artificial. They felt Hollywood, in a sense. I'm curious what your thoughts were on that movie and how realistic or unrealistic it was, as well as your portrayal. Of course, I would have preferred to see more fishing. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Because it is a really interesting fishery. Having said that, when I heard George Clooney was the lead, I begged to play myself. I did not get <laughs> the opportunity to do that. I worked as a consultant for the movie, which I thought at first, oh, great, they're going to pay me to use my name. Wonderful. But the person doing the research for the screenwriter called me on several occasions asking very detailed questions about the fishery. So I thought that was great. They're making an attempt to get it right. And they did well with the fishing part of it. But it's showbiz. Okay. How do you think those actors would have done on a month-long trip out to the fishing grounds with you? That's hard to say. I've hired a lot of people, and I've made some mistakes. There are no questions you can ask at the dock that will truly tell you if someone's going to work out a 1,000 miles offshore for 30 days. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Linda. This was super interesting. Yeah, really. Thank you so much. I think you would have done a great job playing yourself, by the way. Yeah. Who could play me better than me, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. And get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the swordfish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Euro. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of Communications. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 